songwriting is absolutely necessary for me whenever I'm going through struggles. It's really the only thing that can help me accept situations. I cannot talk my way out of a problem, but I can play myself out of a problem. That was Oland, and this is Nordic Portraits. Nana Uland Fabricius, better known by her stage name Oland, is a musician, songwriter and dancer who burst onto the international scene in 2011 with her critically acclaimed eponymous album. Since then, she has continued to develop her own unique genre-defying sound, releasing music both as a solo artist as well as writing and performing scores for theatre and screen, much to the delight of critics and fans alike. Nana, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. I love that you put dancer in there. <laughs> I don't really feel much like a dancer, but yeah, it was part of my identity when I was younger, for sure. We'll get to that for sure. <laughs> um, I wanted to start, Nana, by taking you back to January 2010, mm-hmm. where you had just signed an artist development deal with Epic Records. Yeah. And fulfilled a childhood dream by moving to New York. Yeah. After having petitioned your parents many times to get there, (laughs) you Mm. finally made it. And shortly thereafter, you'd be performing on The Late Show with David Letterman, Mm -hmm. writing and recording with Pharrell, and gracing the red carpet of the prestigious Met Gala. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered what you remember of that time. Um, I remember it all. But it's funny because I don't have a lot of people to share those memories with now. So they kind of fade and they become more and more distant, those memories also because it was so, so real. It was such a different world because everything was so hectic. But I do remember a lot of getting picked up in SUVs and having to stress down my apartment building in Williamsburg which was like a, an old factory building in like some outfit that was really cold <laughs> um, and like impractical and hurrying down the stairs, going somewhere, knowing that soon I'm going to do something that's really make it or break it. And it was super fun. It was a lot of adrenaline and uh, also this weird feeling of, you know, blowing soap bubbles that they're so pretty and fascinating, but they're just going to burst <laughs> anytime. So you were aware of the fact that this could be a fleeting chapter in the context of your career? It felt like blowing soap bubbles every day because there was so much magic happening on a daily basis, like every day in that period of time from like 2010 to 12, every day was opportunities that felt so unrealistic that I could the only way I could really manage it was almost to go the opposite and just be like a little doll (laughs) like a little bit um apathetic yeah and just like kind of flow like a dead fish with the opportunities because it was just too much to really take in but 
Sometimes I wish I had been like a little crazier at the time and just been partying those opportunities away and really just enjoying every second. But like it was also a lot of stress trying to make every opportunity live up to the expectations. Uh, and also I've always had this feeling that everything counts for the rest of your life, that you have to do the absolute best. You can never fail at anything. So I just had really high expectations for myself, for my own delivery. You mentioned going through the motions at times, almost apathetically, mm -hmm. but you did have a strong sense of your own creative identity and purpose even back then. I know, for example, that you were approached by Jay Brown, who is the business partner of Jay-Z and manager of Rihanna. Mm -hmm. He was courting you for a while, but you were happy to turn down that opportunity Can you tell me a little about your thought process at the time? I've never found it hard to say no. I've also not found it hard to say yes. For some weird reason, I don't know where I got such a strong compass, but I've always had a very strong feeling of what I wanted and what I didn't want in terms of my music. And I've just always been very controlled by or like navigated by what is really exciting to me? What is something creatively that really feels like some kind of adventure I want to go on? And then there are other big opportunities or like prestigious or whatever that just doesn't feel exciting or doesn't feel like the right adventure I want to go on. And then it doesn't matter how famous that person is or how much money there is in it or whatever could be the <laughs> trigger for going there. But at the time, I clearly remember meeting Jay Brown and I was very impressed. But also, I think creatively, I've also lived a little bit on my own planet. You know, I've never been that interested in how other people in music got their success or how they like... I've been a huge fan of artists, but I've never really been interested in the technicalities of how they do their art or how they got to where they were with their art. I've been, in that sense, pretty romantic. And I think uh, getting into the machinery and knowing suddenly this person can take you there and seeing that whole machinery, that was just a bit, um, just felt a little weird to me because I actually didn't want to know that side. I actually just wanted to be in love with music. <laughs> Did it make you cynical at all? Mm, no, I think quite the opposite. I think I kind of mourned a little bit that I wasn't more cynical because I knew being cynical would also take me further. So I, I did struggle with feeling like, oh, I wish I could just... I wish I could just do this because I know it would look impressive or it would take me somewhere or it would, you know, other people would die for this opportunity. That kind of like self-blame that I would sometimes put on myself, not going with any opportunity that came along. But I always chose the directions that really seemed exciting to me. And now I really sound like a no-sayer. <laughs> But when I say yes to things, it's everything. And I just really dive into it. And I'm really loyal to that direction I take. And uh, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew which people I wanted to work with. 
And I chose those people because that was where magic happened. Like meeting Dan Carey, who was one of the producers who uh, produced Wolf and I, Perfection. Like those were some of the first songs I wrote for that album that came out in 2011. And uh, it was just magic meeting him and creating those songs without barely having had a conversation. And that got me excited more than like the outlook for some weird abstract successes. (laughs) It's funny talking about these things because I also just realized that I've never really wanted success as weird as it sounds. Um, I've always had this struggle that I don't want to fail and I want to be the best. Like I want to be the best I possibly can. I want to make the best product, uh, have the best experience possible, make the best music possible. But I've never really wanted success, which is like, might sound so weird. It also feels weird saying it, but like I've always been scared of the opportunities that really could give me success because uh, success doesn't really always feel so good it's a very stressful place to be like to be successful is probably the most stressful thing you you can be Um, because there's so much maintaining of success like having responsibility for like a whole range of people and it doesn't give you a lot of freedom and I've always valued freedom higher than anything can you remember a specific time or any decisions along the way where you actively sought to distance yourself from something that you thought could have brought greater success? Often. (laughs) I often have situations where I have the choice between going after the excitement of making something the way I see it or me and the people who are making it sees it or like tilting it in another direction where that is more, I don't know, sellable or where it's easier to expect success. And I kind of like cringe on the inside at the thought of predicting success. When it comes, it's fun because that hasn't been the goal and it hasn't been the criteria for why I've been doing what I've been doing. So when it happens, it's super fun. But if that has been the criteria, then I'm already blocked. (laughs) Well, if we go back to the very start, music was well and truly front and centre in your family home, Mm -hmm. as your father was an accomplished professional organist, and your mother an opera singer who performed regularly at the Royal Theatre. And you've spoken in the past of how you would join her as a young girl for her rehearsals. And I'm curious what you remember of that time shadowing her on and off the stage, and how you feel that might have influenced you as a child. It influenced me tremendously because I saw how magic it can be. Like I use the word magic a lot, but that is truly how I see it. When you kind of lose yourself to a story or play or a feeling, whether it's music or theater, or I think a stage is almost like a catalyst for imagination. And that extreme presence you have when you enter a stage 
where you just leave the real world. It just has no place on a stage. That was just really magic to me and really intriguing. And just the fact that I could see adults lose themselves to imaginations in that way was just uh, kind of gave me hope about growing older. You know, when I was a child, my biggest fear was growing old. <laughs> like I wanted to stay a child forever. And I can see that on my own son. He's really, really anxious about the fact that his voice is going to change someday. He wants to have his voice. And I can really see myself in that. Like I wanted to stay as a child. And I think that was because I saw a lot of grown-ups not being very imaginative or not very present because they were always busy doing so many practical things. And that was when I really just fell in love with art. So this passion for art took on the form of dance for yeah. you at a young age. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned that you were quite the anti-authoritarian child. For sure. So with this rebellious spirit, what interested you then in being part of such a disciplined environment like the Royal Danish Ballet that you'd been accepted into and required so much of your time and effort? Yeah. Um, I really don't know. I would have to talk to my shrink about that. <laughs> um, but it is funny how, like, because I was a very chaotic child, um, I really didn't want to have any rules in my playing or in my imagination. And I made up languages myself and just pretty much lived in my imagination. And I don't know why I was so attracted to this almost militant disciplined world that ballet can be but it's the same today in my music I want as few rules as possible I never want a plan for how I'm writing a song or what kind of song I would write or like how it should sound I would never listen to another song first and be like let's be inspired by this that would just never happen um and Before a show, I like to rehearse as little as possible. So I pick musicians that I really trust their instinct and musicality because I really am quite chaotic in my music. But in my life, I'm really structured. <laughs> It's like wow. totally the opposite. Like I have so many routines, so much structure, um, really neat and tidy and almost like at the point where my boyfriend is like, am I really dating Mussolini or what is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> so it was the same back then. I was very chaotic in my imagination, but super attracted to routines and something like a controlled environment for everything else. What did your parents make of the fact that already in her early teenage years, their daughter was making plans to move to New York and follow her dream. What was their response? Uh, it was, no way, you are not going to New York by yourself. You're 15, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was very busy wanting to test myself. I was fearless, completely fearless. And I've always been very fearless with... Um, a sense of artistic safety or the world. I'm very, I really trust that good things will happen. 
and most likely will happen. Even when things are dangerous, I have a very like positive view on things. And I also had back then when I was 15, I was just like, what can possibly go wrong? Me living alone in New York. <laughs> um, but I, I would say generally, they were very tolerant with me and very trusting. And I didn't ever have a curfew. Uh, I could stay out till six in the morning if I wanted to, as long as I would pick up the phone. <laughs> so in that sense they really trusted me but not with New York when I was 15 so the compromise was that I could go to Stockholm which is like 700 kilometers from Copenhagen and uh, I studied at the ballet school up there and lived by myself for three years so I moved away from home when I was 15 I had to learn to cook an egg and do my laundry myself <laughs> that was a bit of a Hush, wake up. Well, you didn't just do that. You also took both modern and classical dance. Yeah. And had to learn another language. Yeah. What are your memories of that period of time? Because I have read that you found it really difficult. Yeah, it was very difficult. It was lonely. And it was too much. Um, I had the intelligence to do that and I wanted to. I knew what I had to do and what needed to be done and all that, but I just wasn't mature enough. And uh, that is something that I've learned, that those are not the same maturity and intelligence. Like those things don't go hand in hand. And I was just not ready. <laughs> so when I went there, I was just, um, I just had like a hyperactive brain, but emotionally was just not ready for what was coming. But one thing that that whole time taught me was how to um, be alone, how to live with yourself and be productive in a way, because that taught me how to write. And that was the time where I really started writing, actually, because I had no, like, I remember sometimes the weekends were the worst, particularly Sunday, because that would have been the furthest away from a conversation I'd been <laughs> because the last time I'd had a conversation was probably Friday when I left school and then Sunday was really hard because sometimes I hadn't even heard myself say a word so I wrote to keep myself occupied and also to have conversations with myself and that led to like a lot of diaries from those years and um it was entertaining, it was fun, and I grew this love for expressing myself in that way, which then later became songs. Hmm. Do you still keep a diary today? No, I don't. But sometimes I wish I did, because I didn't always have things to tell, but I would write anyways. Then I would start out with... Today I have nothing to say. And then I would always end up having a lot to say. <laughs> well, whilst it was a tough period for you in Stockholm, it was nothing in comparison to the crisis you were about to face, mm -hmm. that being the serious injury you suffered. Mm -hmm. Whilst dancing, you suffered a slipped disc and a fractured spine. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how traumatic that must have been for you. Once you start to come to terms with the physical aspect I'm curious, how do you begin to process that emotionally? Mm. 
It was very hard to deal with. Uh, first of all, I was in complete denial because I always seen myself as a superhero, like someone who could climb a wall if I really wanted to. My body was really my instrument and I felt so strong and kind of like someone who couldn't be defeated. <laughs> um, so it was definitely very hard to suddenly realize that I was mortal. And I think a lot of people, when they grow out of early youth, they realize this at some point and it can be quite shocking. <laughs> For some people, it doesn't happen until like, I don't know, they get wrinkles, but that can also be a shock to some people or like the hair is graying or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. But for me, it was when I was 18 and I suddenly couldn't walk. And that was like a physical shock because it felt like I was imprisoned and I had to redefine everything. I had to redefine my view of my own body, but I also had to redefine the whole way I was thinking about my future because I had invested every second in becoming this dance monster and suddenly that was completely useless. So that was very hard and it took a few years to actually realize this is not going to work out. I'm not going to come back. I'm not resurrecting this career. This is done. That was very hard. Where do you start when you move beyond the denial and you accept the fact that this is not going to happen. Yeah. Can you remember what concrete steps you took just to start rebuilding your own identity? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I compare it to like moving on from a very meaningful relationship where you've loved someone and maybe don't think you can ever love anyone again. That was how I felt like dance was the love of my life. And I was dating a few other jobs or like a few other occupations, but didn't feel love at all. Just did things to keep myself occupied. And then at some point I realized that whatever I was doing during the day, whether it was working in a cafe or doing dishes in a kindergarten or um, I got a job at a TV station, which is such a weird thing because that was actually a really prestigious job. Like I was hosting a TV show, which was something that pretty much just, I saw this little piece in the newspaper that said that they were looking for hosts at a DR. The national broadcaster. Yeah, the, yeah, the national broadcaster. And um, I was desperate to find passion and I just made my own little TV show about music where I like was building this paper mache television that I was sitting inside and I was talking about music. And then I got this gig, which was <laughs> so like out of the blue. But I also felt so bad about not loving what I did. And every day when I came home from work, I was just writing about all my problems like basically grieving through music and I was recording myself I had a actually it was just the built-in microphone in my computer and I was figuring out how to work in GarageBand and I did productions like this was just something I wasn't even aware that I did it but at some point I realized you're doing this every day and on your days off 
you're actually doing this from you wake up till you go to bed. And at some point I was just asking myself, like, am I, is this, am I, am I doing music? Is is this like a thing I want? I'm, I'm, can I do this? <laughs> um, so that was very weird to suddenly realize that I was actually, something had taken over my life without me actually being very aware of it. Is that because by virtue of your parents, mm -hmm. you had a very strong idea of what a musician represented and, yeah. and you weren't that? Exactly. I thought that being a musician, and this is because of the environment I grew up in, where basically cousins, aunts, uncles, my parents, so many professional classical musicians and really like rigorous schedules and if you start later than five, then you are probably too old to learn an instrument, like that sort of mentality. So I never considered that to be a an option for me because at that point I was 20, 21, and that was definitely too late. So for me, it was just, it was just something I did and I loved doing it and I spent all my wake hours doing it. And I burned a CD and accidentally forgot it in my mom's car when I had been borrowing her car for something and I forgot the CD in there. And I was so embarrassed. My mom called me and she was like, what is that CD in the car? Uh, oh, uh, that's just something I... Um, this is nothing. It sounds so good. She was really loving it. And that was quite shocking to me. And that was actually kind of like a breaking point for like taking it seriously. Wow. <laughs> you really embraced that DIY sound mm -hmm. by, again, whether it's your aversion to tradition or authority by avoiding traditional instruments. Mm -hmm. So you were recording sounds all around your apartment. And yeah, did that just feel like the natural approach to you? in terms of merging your passion for production as well that you yeah. just found? Um, it was the only way I could do it because any traditional instrument would intimidate me because I knew what a virtuoso would sound like and I was not that. <laughs> so uh, for me, I had to make my own way of creating music because I knew what the music wanted. I knew what the collected image of sound would be but I just didn't know how to you know necessarily play each instrument I, I was almost more like a director I knew how the final result should sound like but I didn't want to be the actor so I actually never really thought of myself as the singer like I, I didn't think that I would end up singing my songs. I was only singing them because I only had myself, but I was actually, my ambition in the beginning was to find someone who could sing the songs. But then, you know, during the process, I found out that these were my songs. It was my words. They were my experiences. So of course I had to just own it and accept that I am a musician. <laughs> but it took me a very long time to find out that I was a musician. Was the name Oland as well part of your 
attempt to perhaps distance yourself a little bit from Absolutely. It was a very deliberate attempt at disguising. <laughs> Because I didn't want it to sound male or female or band soloist. I didn't actually didn't want it to be me. But it was so it was so me. It was <laughs> everything that I am. Um but it it took a while for me to uh I guess I was shy about owning that in a way. Mm. So when things take off and you find yourself signing to Epic and then also being promoted to mm. a permanent deal for three records. Yeah. After you release the self-titled record in 2011 mm -hmm. and you are flavor of the month for lack of a better term on the global <laughs> scene, what happened from there on in terms of your creative choices and your relationship with the label? Were you always aligned or did that provide tension as your star was shining so bright at that time? It's funny talking about this whole process because now that we talk about it, it's also very clear to me that it was a very big change for me going from this kind of like disguised way of creating music, creating a world, absorbing myself into the making of these songs and suddenly being very clearly pulled out of that haze and being a pop figurine because that was what my label wanted and they kind of also wanted me to, because that's how the world works in many cases. So they obviously wanted me to be a very clear front figure. They wanted me to have producers. They wanted me to not wear a fish costume on stage. <laughs> Um, but be someone who was recognizable. I couldn't change my hair whenever I wanted because then people wouldn't recognize me anymore, which is very clever if you want to make a product. <laughs> like they wanted to make that product recognizable. But I had a lot of conflict about that because when I was doing it all by myself, I was wearing a bear costume for one photo and a fish costume for the next and a house on my head for the third. And suddenly I, I was a very recognizable character and uh it was fun but i also sometimes felt like a doll and i was playing dress up and it was very hard for me to give in like fully give in to that and i think that was also ultimately some of the reason why i didn't stay at epic records because i just got fed up with that i wanted to make decisions for myself without having to talk about what I wanted to do as, you know, some kind of like business plan. I can also imagine if their carrot that they're dangling to you is success mm -hmm. and that's not an ambition or a trigger for you, yeah. it's very hard to see eye to eye. If someone says success to me, I literally get scared. <laughs> But it's so ambivalent because... Of course, you need success to keep doing what you do. And I'm like, I love my fans. I love sharing my music with people who want to listen. So I'm totally dependent on some level of success for me to even exist and do what I do. But 
Yeah, it's a really, <laughs> it, it also probably sounds really ungrateful, but it's, it's not that. It's just the emotion attached to it that's very, like, struggling. <laughs> yeah. Well, given that success is not the big motivator, mm -hmm. you released thereafter a couple of albums that were perhaps not commercially successful and had mixed reviews. Mm-hmm. That was obviously new territory for you. How are you at dealing with criticism? Um, I do pretty well with criticism, as long as it's not personal, I guess. As long as it's not like this fat cow didn't, uh, you know, like there's a lot of criticism like that on the internet because that's how the internet works. And that's obviously just stupid but criticism if people don't love what I do I'm fine with it you know I don't love everything either so yeah I, I, I kind of see it as part of the job but I don't pay too much attention to criticism I kind of shield myself from it because I don't need that input I also don't like too many compliments because That is also disturbing to me. That's also misleading. I kind of want as little opinion as possible <laughs> so that I can stay in my bubble of being able to hear my compass. Like, I really don't want any, like, compass disruption. I guess that's it. Hmm. You mentioned that there are a lot of high-profile musicians who thrive on being surrounded by yes people. Mm -hmm. You seem to have a, a distrust of celebrity <laughs> in, in a healthy way. Mm. Do you know where that came from? Because it seems like from day one, when you hit yeah. the spotlight in the US, you weren't particularly impressed by these famous people that you were no. rubbing shoulders with. No. Um, it's funny because uh, I'm way more impressed now that I'm out of it. Like when I look back at some of those episodes or moments where I'm like, wow, did I really do that? Did I really meet him? Did I really not go to that party? <laughs> like now I can be backwards impressed. Um, but in the moment, I guess some of it just feels staged and uh, not genuine. And I guess that's also part of my compass that I want to like be in places and situations that feel nice and natural and not forced or like if you do this and you will get to this and then you'll meet this and you know that doesn't feel natural no animal thinks like that <laughs> they're just like is this a dangerous place or is this a nice place and I guess I'm just very animalistic in that way so it doesn't really matter if I'm in a very important setting with very important people if I don't have like a fluent conversation with them and if I do then that's great and then I'll stay but if I don't and it doesn't feel natural then I most likely go home very early <laughs> I don't know I'm just not very like lobbyist in that way hmm. I'm guessing one of the most natural and flowing conversations you've ever had was with your fellow guest on Letterman Donald Trump yeah <laughs> I barely remember that, but I do remember his energy and the energy that can just change a room when someone is just taking control of an energy forcibly 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes people enter a room naturally and sometimes they forcibly change the molecules of the air. <laughs> that was how it felt. Like someone just went like slam wow. and out of there. I wanted to just briefly talk about one particular album of yours, Family Tree, which was released in 2019. Mm -hmm. And this was an album that came out after a five-year hiatus. Yeah. And so much had taken place in the interim. Was that five years since I had released something? Yeah, it was. Yeah. And what is it now? That's two years ago. Yeah. Oh, so I can still make it less than five years? I'm glad. <laughs> you set the bar low so you yeah. can just jump over it. Yeah. No, but I mean, with good reason, if you look back at what took place for you personally, you had a child, mm -hmm. you moved back to Denmark, you went through a divorce, and on top of that, your father suffered a heart attack. Yeah. So many extreme life experiences. I'm just curious what role songwriting played in helping you navigate through this heavily traumatic period. Songwriting is absolutely necessary for me whenever I'm going through struggles and emotional conflicts. It's really the only thing that can help me accept situations. Nothing else can help me accept conflict or trauma. I cannot talk my way out of a problem, but I can play myself out of a problem. Not that it disappears on the other side of a song, but I come to terms with the fact that things are the way they are. So whenever I'm in conflict, that's when I make the most songs. That's just the way it is, sadly. I wish I would just write a million songs when I'm happy, but I don't. <laughs> hmm. One of the lyrics from the opening track of the album, Human Error, yeah. particularly caught my eye. My baby didn't ask for change. Mm. They say what you only need is strict routines. Mm. And my baby doesn't know the rules. He'll grow up missing me when he's not missing you. That's very raw. Yeah. I just wondered how you reflect on that progression from this DIY artist living in your bedroom almost distancing yourself from the limelight with an artist name and building this fantastical universe to releasing an album like this where you strip everything back and bear yourself and your personal feelings so openly. Yeah, that was definitely uh, very important. That whole album is very important to me personally, but also as an artist because I was just completely naked on that album. I feel like both lyrically, emotionally, but also sound-wise, I feel like it was so organic, that album, and, and made very instinctively and in one breath. Like, the vocals on that album are pretty much all one takes, and one takes out of three. So there hasn't been any editing in in the takes. And... It was the only way I could do it because those songs were like a performance. It wasn't something that I could go like, oh, is this word, do you understand that word clearly enough? Or was I a bit pitchy on that note? That was not important factors. It was important that I was telling the story and uh, that I was living it in a way. 
So we very quickly knew when it was there. And I also only had a few takes in me because they were very... Uh, I was living the songs at the time I was recording them. So I had no... Uh, I wasn't robust about them. Now when I perform them, I have healed. <laughs> so I've healed more. Obviously, having a child that doesn't only have one home will always be a struggle. But yeah, I have luckily healed in many ways. As a self-proclaimed perfectionist, mm -hmm. was that one of the- Have I said that? Actually, not explicitly. It might be more an assumption I made based on how you describe yourself. Yeah, I appear to a lot of people to be a perfectionist, but I'm actually not. Hmm. <laughs> I'm actually a perfectionist about delivery, like- emotional musical delivery but i'm not perfectionist about details um like i want the emotion and the story in a song to be fully present in a performance or a recording but i don't care if let's say we could have recorded the snare on a better mic or something like that and i don't want to do one more round of drum recordings because of a little mistake if I felt like the emotion or the presence was there. To me, I'm super perfectionist about presence and I get super depressed if I play a concert and felt like we weren't in tune or we weren't present in it. So in that way, I'm perfectionist, but I'm not about a lot of detailed stuff. Mm. I guess the reason I raised it was that I was curious how you are in responding to challenges in your private life. Mm -hmm. If things go sour or relationships fracture, are you hard on yourself? Has it been hard for you to forgive yourself regardless of your role in it? Yeah. I take responsibility for many things that is not solely my responsibility, but I have like a natural drive to solve things and make other people happy. I really want, like in my life and in my family and my circle of friends, I, I really do my best to help people if they aren't happy. So for me, like a breakup, whether it's in love or a business relationship or a friendship, that's incredibly hard because that's not being able to resolve a problem. And, uh, that's hard for me to accept because I kind of want to resolve all problems. <laughs> so are you better now at living in the tension where things can't always be tied up with a neat bow? Yeah. And I've also become better at embracing grief as something that can be positive as well. It sounds probably theoretical, but it's not to me. I'm actually right now going through a process where I'm ending a sort of relationship with someone who has meant a lot to me. And uh, I'm super sad about it, but I'm also happy that I'm sad about it because um, it's for the right reasons and it is what it is. But I'm happy that it's sad because that really means that it's something that is valuable and I'm glad I've spent my time on valuable things 
with valuable people and I haven't spent my time with insignificant people and insignificant experiences and emotions. So in, in that way, I'm actually, for the first time in my life, I actually feel grateful about a grief. <laughs> yeah. On a completely different note, you've been an X Factor judge for a few years now. Yeah. I was just really curious what <laughs> you could share that you've learned from that experience. What has surprised you about your time on the show? Um. I've learned so much being a, a judge in this show. I've learned so much about making TV, all the people behind what they do, what it takes to make a show like that. Um, and uh, that has been so fun and challenging. And I've also learned so much about myself and what I like to do and what I don't like to do. And I've realized that I sacrifice myself a lot for something I think is fun. Like if there's something I think this is fun, then I can compromise with like, okay, I need to be very accessible to the public a lot. Like that was one of the sacrifices I had to make to do X Factor that I would be accessible at all times to everyone because I was a common face. Uh, on prime time every Friday, but I found the work to be so fun and all the like show of it. I really love making a show on stage and the fact that you suddenly get endless opportunities for creating a show every Friday that people will actually see and have opinions about. That was very fun to me. Um, but I've realized after those three years that I don't want to be that public. I don't want my face to be that public. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of want to crawl back into my fish costumes of early days. And I think that's what I'm doing now. So my next chapter, I will sit in the machine more. Hmm. I just find it interesting that you've been so in control of your own creative direction mm -hmm. your whole career and then to join this huge operation where you can't steer the ship but still get so much out of it and feel like you're thriving as a person. To me, that was surprising. Yeah, to me as well. Uh, but even though it's such a huge concept, like X Factor is almost like McDonald's, right? <laughs> so it's, it's such a strong concept and locked concept but the funny thing about working in a machinery like that is to see all the people behind and it's so personal to the people who are working at it it's people who've been producing it for 15 years and doing the same like the woman who is producing it in Denmark she's knitting at all the auditions and she's just sitting there knitting and uh, it's so personal and it feels so not glitz and glamour. It feels very like soft and human when you're in it because those people really are passionate about it and passionate about their craftsmanship. And that was, that was really fun. By virtue of your role on the show, you've had a front row seat to witness so many people embarking on the start of their career and yeah. also as someone who has witnessed how the industry works abroad in comparison to Denmark. I'm curious what your relationship is like to Yentelo. 
Um, it's funny because I think I'm one of the last generations of Danes who are still suffering from Yandelo, like truly, because I feel like the new generation, they aren't. It's not as big a factor. Actually, quite the opposite. They kind of like seem pretty fearless and also full of self-love. And <laughs> like I really see just a generation younger than me are very different from how my generation is. And I feel like I was probably one of the last generations to still be humbled by Yandelo. But on the other hand, I've also always had very big confidence in my will and my imagination and my musicality. I've always known that in music, I'm not afraid of anything. In music, I can do whatever I want. So I've been split between the way society sees it and also my own confidence always being very certain. Mm. Just in closing, Nana, given what you know now, if you could go back to Stockholm and visit the younger version of yourself, mm -hmm. the 15-year-old Nana sitting alone on a Sunday afternoon writing to herself, what would you tell her? Um... Oh, that's very hard because would it matter? Like whatever I told her, <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, I would just say you are doing exactly the right thing. This is all meaningful. Just do that. Nana, I appreciate you taking the time to share so openly and honestly about your life and career and I really enjoyed it. Me too. Sorry about my very abstract answers. <laughs> it was wonderful. Thanks. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.